Well, we're in the middle of a series that we're calling His Kingdom Come. In fact, over the next few months, we'll be looking at the life of Jesus through the Gospel of Matthew. And so we truly hope that you've been blessed already and that you will be blessed by this series. Now, last week on His Kingdom Come, Pastor Dave did a masterful job of talking about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. Immediately after this event, though, Jesus began his public ministry. And so he walks by the Sea of Galilee, and he calls a few fishermen to be his disciples. Then he begins ministering to great crowds in the area of Galilee, and he's teaching people about the gospel, and he's healing people, and his fame starts to spread. And so people were saying, have you heard about this Jesus guy? In fact, the text tells us that crowds were following him everywhere. They were coming from the big city, from Jerusalem, and from the country beyond the Jordan River. In fact, if Jesus were in Basking Ridge, people would have been flocking all the way from New York City here to see him, and they would have been coming from that area beyond the Delaware River that we call Pennsylvania. Then we get to the chapter 5 of Matthew's Gospel, and Jesus sees these great crowds, and he goes up to the mountain, and he decides to sit down, and his disciples start coming to him. And it tells us in the text that Jesus opened his mouth and began to teach. And this is what he said. He said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And with those words, Jesus began his very famous Sermon on the Mount. Those words started the Sermon on the Mount, which would continue for a couple chapters in Matthew 5 to 7. Now, these words are so famous that people actually say, these are the only words of the Bible we should read. Now, I don't agree with that, but what Jesus is doing here at the beginning of Matthew 5 is telling us about life in the kingdom. Today, I undertake a very daunting task, which is covering the entire Sermon on the Mount in one message. But I suppose Jesus did it in one sermon, so why not? Now, if you're hungry for more than one sermon after this message, Bill Onzorg is going to be launching a class on the Sermon on the Mount in our spring adult education semester, so stay tuned for information about that. But today, what we'll see is this, that living out the Sermon on the Mount is not merely about action. No. No, Jesus is talking about much more than that. He's showing us masterfully that there's something more. It's not about modifying our behavior. It's about an inside-out revolution that can change our lives and our world. And so before we begin, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you and we praise you. 
We thank you that you are a God who is sovereign over this world, sovereign over our lives, Lord, that you care about life. You're a God who gives life. And so even as we remember that today, Lord, we remember the God behind the life-giving. And so as we come to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Lord, may these words pierce our hearts. May they pierce my heart today, Lord God. And may we leave this place changed for your glory Have your way with us now, Lord. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on October 17th, 1989, at 5.04 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, an earthquake struck the San Francisco Bay Area. Many of you, like myself, maybe remember that earthquake because it occurred during the 1989 World Series between the Oakland Athletics and the San Francisco Giants. The cameras were shaking People inside the stadium were panicked. TV broadcasters didn't know what to say. In fact, once the initial shock of the earthquake was done, we saw images like this of the Bay Bridge collapsing and of other destruction. The earthquake was a 6.9 on the Richter scale. It killed 67 people, injured 3,000, and caused $5 billion with a B dollars in damages. Now, living on the East Coast, I didn't quite know why an earthquake should delay the World Series, (laughs) since I never lived through one, right? Maybe never of you. But I quickly learned a lesson. Earthquakes are powerful. In fact, the center of an earthquake, the center of this earthquake was 60 miles south of San Francisco in the Santa Cruz Mountains. Well, how does that work, I wondered. And so I began studying the science of earthquakes and discovered that earthquakes are caused by the rubbing of tectonic plates far below the surface of the earth. Now, earthquakes happen every day all over the world without people noticing. But sometimes they're powerful enough for people to notice, like October 17, 1989. See, when enough energy builds up, it sends a seismic wave that is felt at a great distance. It emanates from a place called the epicenter, far below the surface of the planet. In other words, earthquakes start from the inside out. And when Jesus spoke the Sermon on the Mount, he wanted to cause an earthquake inside of us. The shockwaves can still be felt today. But there's great tension in the Sermon on the Mount because our world constantly tells us that if we want to change, we need to live outside in. The world tells us that if we modify our behavior, it will change our heart. In fact, that's at the center of the self-help philosophies, right? God helps those who help themselves, right? Right, except the Bible never says that. Or what about the American dream? If you just work hard enough, you can achieve anything. If you work hard enough, you can earn enough money to buy your happiness. Or you can afford a life coach who can teach you how to live. If you go to the gym and you sweat enough, your life will be better, right? Well, working hard isn't bad, but change can't be outside in. It has to be inside out. See, the world promises us a better life with outside in in living, but Jesus says that if you want to change on the outside, it has to happen on the inside. When there's an earthquake in your heart, it will start a revolution that will shock the world. Well, how does this happen? Look at how Jesus continues in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. 
But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the salt of the earth. Well, what does that mean? Well, I don't know about you, but I love salty things, right? It adds a very distinct flavor to certain foods. In fact, I'm on a, on a, I'm on a Himalayan salt kick right now. They even are putting it on potato chips. It's wonderful. Supposedly, it's better for you than other salt. In Jesus' day, salt was used as a preservative to prevent the decay of meat. Disciples, he says, therefore, can be so salty they prevent the decay of society. However, Jesus says, beware, you can lose your saltiness. Because in ancient times, what happened was salt was a piece of rock that was dug up from the ground, and it looked like, like a salt rock, right? But it lacked the, uh, the flavor of salt because what would happen is that the, the sodium chloride would dissolve, leaving a residue, and water washed through it. And so what Jesus is saying is that we must retain our distinctive flavor to the world, Jesus' disciples must be different. There must be evidence of a revolution in our heart. So Jesus continues, Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. See, Jesus says to his disciples, you're not just salt, you're light. <clears throat> not only that, you're the light of the world. In other words, you need to burn brighter than other people so that the watching world will know where to place their hope. Live such different lives, he says, so that people will see your good deeds and as a result, praise God. That when people see your life, they will know there's something different about you. There is, and those are the evidences of the inside-out revolution, the shockwaves of the earthquake in your heart. But then in Matthew 5, 17, Jesus gives us the key to the inside-out revolution. He says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. What's Jesus saying? Why is this so important? Well, in fact, to his contemporaries, it may seem that Jesus is setting aside the law but if you read closely enough, you'll see that Jesus is not saying the law is totally going away. He's saying that something different is happening. He says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. Well, what does that mean? Listen closely. Jesus is saying that while moral living is involved in Christianity, it is much more than that. He says, let me talk to you about the epicenter. Let me talk to you about your heart. And when we start to understand that, we're going to start to truly understand the Sermon on the Mount. You see, so many of us, I think, in this room are engaged in outside-in living that we don't even realize it. We're trying to earn righteousness with God through moral living in our religious activities, but when we do that, we've missed the gospel. Because Jesus says, I've already accomplished righteousness for you on the cross. Don't you see? 
that our hearts are bent towards works righteousness, but Jesus says, I am your gift righteousness. And when you truly start to understand that, an earthquake will shatter in your heart, will begin that will shatter the Richter scale. If you want a revolution, it has to come from a truly transformed heart. Well, how does this inside-out revolution happen? Three things. you got to find the epicenter, you got to ride the shockwave, and then you have to make the ultimate choice. Find the epicenter, ride the shockwave, make the ultimate choice. Let's start with point one, the epicenter. Now, let's remind ourselves of this scene. Now, Jesus is sitting on a mountain talking to his disciples, and there's crowds on the outside probably trying to listen in, but Jesus is speaking to the disciples here. He's telling them about life in his kingdom if you're a follower of Christ today. And he says to his religious Jewish audience, people who knew the law and the prophets and held them in high esteem, he says, I've come to fulfill them. And if that wasn't shocking enough, Jesus goes on to say this. He says, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Wait, what? What are you saying, Jesus? First, you talked about fulfilling the law, and now this. Well, let's offer some clarification here. Jesus' initial audience considered scribes to be the most accurate interpreters of scriptures, and the Pharisees were the most devout devout practitioners. In fact, if this was today, he might have said, your righteousness should surpass that of Pastor Dave or of one of our missionaries on the field. But don't miss this, because it's really, really important. Because as the sermon goes on, we realize that Jesus didn't expect the disciples to surpass the scribes and Pharisees at their own game. What Jesus was doing here was redefining righteousness. See, the scribes and the Pharisees had so many rules. In fact, there was like 613. And Jesus says the minute details are not as important as the goals and attitude behind the actions. In other words, Jesus is saying that we surpass the scribes and the Pharisees by having a genuine heart for God. That is true righteousness. Author Dan Doriani says it this way. He says, this true righteousness shows itself when disciples do the right things for the right reasons. See, the world is full of people who never did anything really bad, but only because they never had a chance. Jesus expects his disciples to do the right things for the right reasons, not out of fear and calculation, but out of love for God and man. Is there something bad that you would have done if you had a chance? Something to ponder. But it's an intimidating truth, as we'll see at the end of this sermon. Because how do you know that you're doing the right thing for the right reasons? In other words, what he's saying is our church may be filled with people who are doing all kinds of religious activities, who maybe appear to be following the law, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. See, the question is this, are you living outside in or inside out? Oh, you say, what do you mean? Well, let me give a few examples just to kind of spur your, your thinking. Maybe, maybe you serve on a leadership team here at church. Or perhaps you teach Sunday school. 
Maybe you've done so for many years. People commend you for this, and it feels good, right? Is the reason you do these things because you want recognition or you want to serve God with no recognition? Or maybe you're part of a small group, and people can commend you for your knowledge of the Bible. Is your motivation in sharing so that you will be recognized, or is it to love people and build them up? You see, what Jesus is doing and what Jesus always does is to press on our heart motivations because he knows the heart is the epicenter. It's where the revolution begins. And look at what he does next. In fact, in the rest of chapter 5, he offers six repetitive statements. Jesus says over and over again, you have heard it said, but I say to you. He says, you have heard it said, But I say to you, what is he doing? He's redefining righteousness, and he's walking the disciples through the Ten Commandments to do it. In chapter 5, he walks through the moral demands of the law. In chapter 6, he focuses on religious activities. What's the first thing he brings up? Anger. He says, you have heard that it was said to people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Now, some of you are sitting out there saying, well, that sounds familiar. Yes, it's the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. And my suspicion is that probably no one in this room has ever committed murder. But have you ever been angry at someone? Have you ever been so angry that you wanted to hurt someone? Maybe you pulled one of your friends aside because you just had to vent because someone made you so angry. See, what Jesus is doing is he's pressing at the heart, and he's actually elevating the law. He says, you may never have murdered someone, but I tell you, if you even get angry at someone, you're subject to judgment. Now, many of us in this room... I'm sorry, how many of us in this room have ever been angry at someone? Raise your hands, right? Right? And those of you that aren't raising your hands are probably lying and you broke another commandment. (laughs) What is Jesus doing? He is redefining righteousness. He is starting an inside-out revolution. And for the rest of chapter 5, Jesus continues to walk through different areas of the law and redefine righteousness. What's the next thing he brings up? He brings up lust in verse 27. It's the seventh commandment. He says, you shall not commit adultery. And again, most people in this room say, well, I've been faithful to my spouse. But Jesus says, if you look at a woman with lustful intent, you've committed adultery. And everyone shrinks back. What's going on in your heart? Then he leads into divorce in verses 31 and 32. he's, He's combating the divorce culture of his day and saying, you can't just divorce your wife for whatever reason you want, men. You need to stay in your marriage and work on it. He moves on to oaths in verses 33 to 37, and he essentially talks about the truth. He says, the truth should always be in your heart. Don't lie. Verse 38 to 42, he talks about retaliation. Jesus says that even if you want to take revenge against someone, don't. What does he say, famously? If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other also. What does that mean? I mean, if somebody hits my cheek, they better watch out, right? 
See, Jesus says if someone hits you, don't hit back, and that's a sermon for another day. The last thing he mentions is our enemies. Verses 43 to 47, he says one of the most difficult commands in the Bible, I think. He says this, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, most of us in the audience sitting here are sitting here saying, well, it's, it, listen, Pastor Bob, it's difficult enough to love the people that I like, let alone my enemies. Well, that Greek word that's used there for love is the Greek word akapao, which is used to focus on attitudes. In other words, loving our enemies includes inward attitudes, not just outward deeds. And this teaching, I think, makes us want to throw up our hands in exhaustion and say, how can I do this? Why should I do this? Well, Jesus answers that question in verse 45. He says, you do this that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Did you hear that? He says, by doing this, you show yourself to be children of your Father in heaven. He says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? In fact, he goes on to say in the next verse, if you do that, you're no different than the Gentile pagans. They love the people who love them. No, Jesus says, you be different. I am calling you to be people of the inside-out revolution, and people in this revolution love their enemies. And if that was not enough, Jesus makes one final impossible goal in chapter 5. He says this, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now at this point, some of us have stopped listening because we've already concluded we can't do this. I'm not perfect, I can't love my enemies. Forget about that other stuff you mentioned, Jesus, right? Well, you've missed the point of what Jesus is saying in chapter 5. Because Jesus has said, yes, living a moral life is clearly important and is part of the Christian life. But don't forget what I said back back in verse 17. I said this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? but to fulfill them. You see, what the disciples couldn't know, but what we cannot miss, is that Jesus Christ did fulfill the law. He was perfect, as his heavenly Father was perfect. He went to the cross and paid the price for our sins. Of course we can't obey the law perfectly, but Jesus obeyed the law perfectly for us. And so we can only be more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees because Jesus earned righteousness for us. And on the cross, Jesus paid the penalty of our sin to redeem us, and now we seek to obey this new, higher law out of love for a Savior who gave everything for us. And he wants your heart. That's the epicenter of the inside-out kingdom. Has there been an earthquake in your heart? If there hasn't, perhaps you have just been going through the religious motions in your life. In fact, if you're a teenager here today, maybe you've been going through the motions. Perhaps your parents have been forcing you to attend church or a youth group. 
And what I want you to hear today is that God wants to start an earthquake in your heart. Perhaps you've been a Christian for a long time and, and now you're walking through a dry spell. I've been there. There's been many moments in my life when I long for a tremor to melt my heart. God wants a fresh earthquake in your heart today. Friends, remember that when God gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel, they had already been saved. They had already been taken out of slavery and redeemed from bondage in Egypt. And the same is true with us if you know Christ as Lord. Our epicenter is a redeemed heart that seeks to live for Jesus. And once that happens, it leads to a transformation in the way we do life. And that's point two. We got to ride the shockwave. Ride the shockwave. So Jesus begins his sermon by talking about a new worldview with the Beatitudes. Then he focuses on the moral demands of the law, and he makes them harder, actually. Jesus said, it's not simply your actions I want, it's your, it's your heart. The epicenter of the inside-out revolution. And so as we move deeper into his sermon, in chapter 6, we will see, like the 1989 earthquake in San Francisco, that the shockwave will be felt far from the epicenter. In this case, our religious life. And so he begins chapter 6 this way. He says, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now again, this is such a countercultural statement for those of us in America. We are so accustomed to living outside in defining our status and worth in what we do before other people. But what does Jesus say here? He says that if you act righteous before other people, you won't get a reward from your Father. Why? Because Jesus knows our hearts better than we do. He knows the allure of fame and accomplishment, and as soon as we start earning praise from other people, our actions become about us achieving status with other people, not with pleasing God. We become hypocrites. In fact, he uses that language with three examples. First, in verses 2 to 4, he talks about giving to the needy. And Jesus says, don't be like those hypocrites who give to the poor so everyone can see them. They're hypocrites. Why? And let me offer an illustration. A number of years ago, when I was a youth pastor in Colorado, I brought our youth group on a mission trip to New York City. And we did a lot of work with an organization who helped the poor. They were focused on meeting the physical and spiritual needs of the poor, and their ministry was so effective that local corporations wanted to copy them. And so what these corporations did was they would hire people to go and drop food off next to the homeless shelter, the local homeless shelter. And so they'd drop off the food at the door, and then they would drive away. Why? They did this so they could say they gave food to the poor, so they could get the recognition without the relationship. And Jesus would have cringed at these efforts. They were doing the very thing that Jesus was teaching against. Don't do it for recognition, he says. Instead, Jesus says a phrase that's repeated over and over again throughout chapter 6. He says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be done where? In secret. Then your father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. He says, do it in secret. Do it in secret. Do you see what he's saying? 
It says, don't do this for recognition. Do it out of a genuine love for the Father. He is the one who will see and reward you. And when you start doing these things for recognition, it becomes about you, not about God. You start engaging in the religious activities to earn your righteousness instead of living from the righteousness Jesus earned for you. Jesus says the same thing about prayer. Do not look for recognition. He says the same thing about fasting. Don't look for recognition. Instead, your heavenly Father will reward you. Now, two things need to be mentioned here. First, Jesus is not saying that we should not engage in these activities. He's again pressing on our heart motivations. If our heart motivation is for status and recognition, it will just be about duty. And if our motivation is, is duty, your actions start to smell like duty. So God says they're filthy rags, right? But if our heart motivation is about pleasing God and, and living in response to what Jesus has done, we will be more generous. We will actually pray more. We will, we will want to get closer to God through fasting. Jesus says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Instead, he says, focus on your eternal rewards. And then... He says something profound. He says, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And so I may ask, what do you treasure? If your treasure is here on earth, it will affect your heart motivation. If your treasure is here on earth, it's likely going to become your master, not God. As Jesus says, you can't serve two masters when the inside-out revolution has captured our hearts, our actions will be more genuine. But secondly, we also need to recognize that we have worth and value that come from our Heavenly Father. And that worth and value is crucial because we recognize that our approval comes from God, not others. And when our approval comes from others, we engage in religious activities to justify ourselves before God. But don't you know already that you have his approval? Now you can respond out of love for him, not to earn his love. It is what makes our religious activities more genuine. His love fuels the shockwave we ride. Now, notice that theme that we have a father is mentioned over and over again in chapter 6. In Matthew 6, 4, 6, 6, and 6, 18, he, he says, your heavenly father will see what's done in secret and reward you. When Jesus teaches his disciples to pray, how should we pray? He says, pray our father. And if you skip to the end of the chapter, Jesus tells us not to be anxious about anything. In fact, many of us here know what anxiety feels like. And we say, what do you mean I shouldn't be anxious about anything? That makes me anxious. What does Jesus say? He says, what's your life? Is it more than food and clothes? How can you add one single hour to your life by worrying? Look at the birds. <laughs> Look at the lilies. Does God take care of them? And don't miss what he says next. He says, are you not of more value than them? It's like God takes care of the birds. Of course he's going to take care of you. Friends, you have value. Matthew 6.30 says this, If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, we will not, how 
will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. Friends, God cares more about you than you could possibly imagine. You have value and worth in him. So stop worrying about money. Stop worrying about your future. Stop worrying about the next election. Stop worrying about the stock market. God will protect you. Now, to be clear, I'm not saying we shouldn't be responsible. I'm simply saying we shouldn't be obsessed. Because when you know your value and worth is found in the love of your heavenly Father and what he did for you on the cross, it shouldn't matter what other people think. So stop trying to show others how much you give, how well you pray, and how much you fast. Do you know what matters? This is what matters. Matthew 6, 33. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. And all these things will be given to you. And when that happens, guess what? Your prayers start to change. Instead of always offering a laundry list of needs or wants because God knows them already, what do you do? You start to pray like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And you know what else you do? You stop judging people. That's where Jesus goes in chapter 7. Jesus says, stop looking down on other people and minimizing the logs in your own eye, right? Instead, focus on your own sins because that's going to drive you to your knees and it's going to cause you to cling to the cross. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul I to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that your prayer? Has there been an earthquake in your heart that has reverberated in your life? Are you riding the shockwave? Because don't you see, church, the inside-out revolution begins in our hearts, the epicenter. But when the gospel truly grips our hearts, it sends shockwaves into the rest of our lives. We're more generous. We cry out to God when we pray. We don't seek others' approvals. We seek God's approval. We stop worrying, and we don't look down on others. And that sounds like a revolution I'd like to join. And so we come to our third and final point. We need to make the ultimate choice. Make the ultimate choice. See, when any revolution happens, the people have to choose to join it. And so I, I ask you today, what will your choice be? Some of us in this room truthfully have been going through the motions of religious duties. You serve, you read the Bible, you give. But if you're honest, you do it more for recognition. Or you do it out of fear because other people are going to judge you if you don't. The gospel hasn't gripped your heart. And so it's interesting then, it's very interesting, that when Jesus sums up his whole sermon, he does it with three stories. In fact, if you read Luke's account of the Sermon on the Mount in Luke chapter 6, Jesus ends the sermon the same way in that place. The three stories are this. There's two roads. 
One is easy, one is hard. There's two trees. One has good fruit, one has poison. There's two houses. One stood strong, the other was destroyed. What, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, I want to suggest to you that this last section is the key to understanding the entire Sermon on the Mount. In fact, some commentators have suggested that what Jesus does here at the end of the sermon is what he's been doing all along. He's actually been contrasting two different groups of people who have been on two different paths. And it comes to a head in chapter 7, verse 21. This is what Jesus says. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. Wait, what? Well, isn't Jesus talking to his disciples here, right? You mean some will not enter the kingdom of heaven? Yeah. He says, only those who do the will of my Father will enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember how I taught you to pray in chapter 6? And what should scare us is what he says next. Verse 22, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will say to them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Wow. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying many people will come to him on the day of judgment and will say, Jesus, I taught Sunday school for many. Jesus, I went on the relief bus every Friday night. Jesus, I even went on a mission trip to Senegal. I, I led a small group. I gave so much money. And what's Jesus going to say to many? I never knew you. I never knew you. See, Jesus says there's two roads. One is wide and easy, but it leads to destruction. The other is narrow and hard, but it leads to life. There's two trees. One is healthy and bears fruit. The other is diseased and bears poisonous fruit. There's two houses. There's a wise man and a foolish man. The wise man built his house upon the rock, right? The foolish man built his house upon the sand. Which one are you? Which tree are you? The one with good or poison fruit? Which road will you take? See, here's the contrast Jesus has been making the whole sermon. He says there's religious people and there's people who've been truly transformed by the gospel of grace. That on the outside, religious people appear to be doing everything the same as everyone else. They try to obey the law. They give money to the poor. They pray. They fast. But their hearts have not truly been transformed. Those people didn't truly make the choice to surrender their lives to Jesus. They simply did the religious activities, and they got recognition for it. But when they came before Jesus, Jesus said, you missed the point. You lived outside in, not inside out. And it all comes back to Matthew 5, 17. What did Jesus say? Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? To fulfill them. See, religious people think they need to earn their righteousness, but gospel-changed people recognize Jesus earned righteousness for us. Now, at this point, some of us are asking the question, well, well, how do I know if I'm a religious person or somebody who's truly had my heart transformed by the gospel? Let me offer three quick points of application and then close with a story. 
Is your heart moved by the gospel? See, I heard a preacher say one time that if you want to truly know if you're a Christian, take notice of the way you sing Amazing Grace. Is your heart moved because you believe those words? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Do you believe that or is your heart cold? Do you love it when God tells you what to do? See, when the gospel grips our heart, we recognize that our heavenly Father loves us and cares for us. He knows better. And if we're always fighting God when we read his word, it may be that we still want control of our lives. Who gets the glory? Really and truly take an inventory of your life that when you engage in religious activities, does God get the glory or do you? Because disciples of Christ recognize whose they are. And when we pray, we pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. In other words, God, may you get the glory. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. That's why we name this series His Kingdom Come. Because it's not about us, it's about Him. Not my kingdom or my will, but his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And when heaven breaks into this world, God gets the glory. Has there been an earthquake in your heart? Has a shockwave reverberated in your life? Or do you still need to make a choice? See, the inside-out revolution happens when our hearts are truly transformed, when we recognize that our righteousness is found in Christ and Christ alone. And so let me close with this story. You may be familiar with the name George Whitfield. He's a British preacher, and during his ministry, he preached to some 18,000 sermons to over 10 million listeners. His preaching was not limited to Great Britain, in fact, in 1740, he made his way to America where he preached a series of revival meetings that have become known as the, the Great Awakening. Initially in England, he did not get a pulpit, so he preached in parks. It was said that he had a very emotional style of preaching and elicited responses from his audience. So I'm going to invite the worship team to come back on stage because we're going we're to try to elicit a response from you in a second. What you may or may not know is that the Great Awakening made its way to Basking Ridge, New Jersey, and so did George Whitfield. In fact, there used to be a tree in the center of the town of Basking Ridge under the Presbyterian Church, and as it said under that tree, George Whitfield preached to thousands of people and told them about the gospel of grace, and through his preaching, a revolution happened here in New Jersey. Unfortunately, as you may know, that tree was cut down a few years ago. But this past Christmas, a local store started selling pieces of that tree that they made into ornaments. And I told Amanda, I have to go get one. I have to go get one of these because I need a piece of the tree. Because it serves as a reminder to me that an awakening happened here once. And it can happen again. And so Millington Baptist Church, what if there could be another great awakening in New Jersey? What if the thousands of people who live here who don't know Jesus had their hearts awakened to the power of the gospel? I would submit to you today that this only happens when the inside-out revolution first captures our hearts. May there be an earthquake that starts here 
May the shockwave reverberate out here so that others would choose to enter the kingdom. Will you join that revolution? Let me pray for us.